Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun, here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, we're getting into We got a couple of obituaries here to start us off with. Uh, starting off with uh, two of them from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 10, 2023. First one is Louise Wheezy Grant Garland, November 5th, 1941 to January 26, 2023, author unknown. Louise Grant Garland was born, raised, and lived here in her life in Los Angeles, California. She passed away after a brief heroic fight with multiple myeloma on January 26, 2023. She passed away in Santa Monica, California, surrounded by her children and their families, including her grandchildren. Louise Wheezy Garland was born on November 5, 1941, to her parents Dorothy and Richard Grant in Los Angeles, California. In high school, Wheezy attended the Santa Catalina School in Monterey, California, where she met many of her dearest friends and spent some of her happiest days. She's planning on one last reunion to celebrate her 65 years of friendship with her extraordinary class of 1959. Later, she graduated from the University of Southern California with a degree in education. She taught elementary school in East Los Angeles for several years. Louise married William May Garland II in 1964. They had two children, Bill, Katie, and Hillary. In 1975, her husband passed away in a small plane crash, and Louise became a single parent overnight. She embraced the challenges of parenting and felt proud that her daughter became a psychologist and her son an equity trader. Louise's six grandchildren were her greatest source of joy and she was immensely proud that each child was pursuing their passions in college and have great senses of humor. Louise loved her large extended family. She mourned the passing of her eldest brother Richard Grant in 2022 and loved connecting with her siblings Melinda Grant, Tom Quinn, Susan Grant, Maisel, Larry, Andrew Grant, Sue, and Joseph Grant, Beth. She adored her weekly lunches with her cousin Maria Brandt. She was also she was always so happy to see her other nieces and nephews, including Jill Grant, Nick Marcel, Kate, Sam Grant, Emily, and Elizabeth Grant, Usher, John. She was also no, she was also she was always so grateful for to her sister-in-law, Maria Grant, for her conversations and knowledgeable tours of the Huntington Gardens. Her connection to her her connection uh, her conversations and knowledge her connection to her late husband's family, uh, uh, Gwendolyn Gar Garland Babak uh, Gill, and her nieces and nephews, Sarah Babak and Anne Babak, Susan Babak and John Babak Law, brought her joy and laughter. Louise loved her work as a mother, but also as a volunteer, where she served as a longtime Dawson at UCLA's Hannah Center, Japanese Gardens, and worked with underrepresented youth at, as CASA volunteer. Louise was most passionate about classical chamber music and the opera. Her beloved L.A. opera friends Carol Henry and John Nuckels fostered her passion and knowledge for music to develop and flourish. Her philanthropic dedication to, her, to the Coburn School and a desire to keep classical music alive and thriving in the younger generation was a top priority in her later years. Wheezy was loved by all who knew her. She was a role model for her children and grandchildren in life and in death. She connected deeply with her with everyone through her endless questions and her boundless sense of play. Her vibrant personality and easy laugh will be missed by all. 
the family requests in lieu of flowers and cards donations be made to the Santa Catalina Scholarship, www.santacatalina.org slash uh, upper dash school slash giving uh, slash give dash online or the Colburn School, www.colburnschool.edu slash louise. At uh, her request, in her, fi- in her final wishes, there will be no public memorial service, but a private one attended by family and close friends. She will be remembered and acknowledged as a dedicated and loving mother, an adoring grandmother, and an unwavering supportive family member, and a friend who was allergic to boredom. That was Louise Weezy Grant Garland, uh, November 5th, 1944 to January 26, 2023, author unknown. This next one is Linda Weed. Arthur Unknown, W-E-I-D-E. Linda Weed, my remarkable wife, believed everybody's age was nobody's business. Let's just say that she was ageless and timeless. She had a kind of elegance from another era. She studied acting under Sheila, uh, Stella Adler, who told her, My dear, you should only play queens. She was certainly my queen for 28 years, 25 married. In 2018, she was diagnosed with progressive supranuclear palsy, a rare but fatal neurological disease. Please Google it. Her bravery and dignity in the face of this illness were awe-inspiring, but unfortunately the house always wins. She died on Christmas Day 2022, peacefully at home and in my arms, and if you must die, try to do it in the arms of someone who loves you. It helps. She was born in Fallensby, West Virginia, to Lucy Giannini at Victor Ubieta. Her Aunt Lee and Uncle Eli Robb were important figures in her upbringing. She attended Bethany College where she received a BA in liberal arts. She lived a ta- for a time in Boston, then Manhattan. In 1989, she moved to Los Angeles. Thank God for the last move because on September 30, 1994, I walked into Cafe Aroma in Studio City and there she was. She had it all. Beauty, style, grace, intelligence, wit, a great laugh, a binding smile, and I can say this in 2023, legs that demanded to be shown off, and were. That night, I wrote in my journal, I think I may, in be, I may be in big trouble. We were married on July 11, 1998. She was remarkable, low, remarkably low maintenance. We both appreciated the occasional meal in a fine restaurant and traveling abroad, but some years I'd ask what she wanted for her birthday and she would answer, a grilled cheese sandwich. Typical. She was generous to a fault, always putting others' needs before her own. Her softest spot uh, was reserved for animals, especially those in need. Our own animals were all rescues, and friends would tell her, if I can come back in another life, I want to be one of your animals. Her favorite charity was Best Friends Animal Sanctuary, but she donated to many others. Understandably, she would become disenchanted with acting, but two memorial roles were that of Penelope in the 21 LA stage revival of Kurt Vonnegut's Happy Birthday Wanda June, as she was asked to play the part of Vonnegut, and the role of Mindy Reiser in the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode, The Terrorist Attack. She's also featured in the 2021 documentary, Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time, which is dedicated to her. What a team we made. She was grace to my George. After he purchased Side by Side Cemetery Plots years ago, 
I asked her what she wanted her marker to say, and she answered, I'm with stupid. That request will not be honored. Oh dear, what am I ever going to, what am I, whatever am I supposed to do without her? They say nothing lasts forever, but they didn't know about my love for her. Twenty years wasn't nearly long enough. Still, I may just be the luckiest SOV who ever lived. Rest well, Bunny. I hope we'll be together again. For those who never knew her, I'm sorry for your loss. That was Linda Weed, author unknown, and those are both from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 19, 2023. All right, now here's another one from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 30th, 2023. Victor Navasky, award-winning author, journalist. For years, the New York native edited the influential liberal weekly, The Nation, by Hillel Itali. Victor Navasky, an award-winning author and journalist who for years presided over the liberal weekly The Nation and wrote influential books on the anti-communist blacklist and Robert F. Kennedy's Justice Department, has died. He was 90. Navasky's guest was confirmed Tuesday by a spokesperson at The Nation who did not immediately have additional details. The magazine's publisher, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, tweeted that Navasky had changed her life and thousands of others. Those he, he edited included such prominent liberals as David Korn, Eric Alterman, and Katha Pollitt. Victor was a true believer of, in the power of independent media, quietly fierce in his, in his convictions, kind and generous to so very many, Van and Heuvel wrote. wrote. A man with a professorial presence and diplomatic manner, Navasky was long a familiar name and face in the literary and political scene as an editor and publishing uh, columnist for the New York Times, as founder of the satirical magazine Monocle, and from 1978 to 2005 as editor and then publisher of The Nation. Navasky was also known for his books on political and cultural history. Naming Names, winner of a National Book Award in 1982, was a lengthy account of the Cold War and blacklisting of alleged communists that was praised as thorough and fair-minded. He also called the book a moral detective story and drew upon interviews with actor Lee J. Cobb, screenwriter Buddy Schulberg, and others who informed on their peers, dramatizing not just the attacks from Senator Joseph McCarthy and other Republicans, but the conflicts among liberals over how to respond. A decade earlier, Navasky wrote Kennedy Justice, which offered some of the first sustained liberal analysis of Kennedy's brief time as Attorney General, his recruitment of such gifted underlings as future Supreme Court Justice Byron White and Nicholas Katzenbach, and his tiring battle to control the FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Some scholars thought Navasky romanticized Kennedy, although the author did chastise Kennedy for his record of appointing segregationist judges to the federal courts. No aspect of Robert Kennedy's attorney generalship is more vulnerable to criticism, he wrote, for it was a blatant contradiction for the Kennedys to forego civil rights legislation and executive action in favor of litigation and at the uh, same time appoint as lifetime litigation overseers men dedicated to frustrating that litigation. In recent years, Navasky was publisher emeritus of The Nation and an occasional contributor. 
He also taught journalism at Columbia University, chaired the Columbia Journalism Review, and served on the board of numerous organizations, including the Authors Guild and the Committee to Protect Journalists. Nevesky married Anne Strongen in 1966. They had three children. A native of New York, Navasky was liberal from the time he knew what the word meant. He went to grade school in Greenwich Village and would speak of classmates whose parents were unemployed because of their politics. For high school, he attended the Little Red Schoolhouse, which was inspired in part by the progressive educational theories of John Dewey. We had one Marxist history teacher who taught a straight Marxist view of history, Navasky told The Guardian in 2005. I remember he once asked where diamonds got their value. Someone said because they're beautiful. He said no, no. Someone else said supply and demand. He said no. Someone else said from the sweat and the workers in the mines. And he said right. Navasky majored in political science at Swarthmore College where he edited the student newspaper and received a graduate degree from Yale Law School. At Yale, he helped start Monocle, which ran from 1959 to 1965 and was credited as a predecessor to the absurdist humor of John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. One Monocle contributor, Nora Ephron, would remember Navasky as a man who knew important people and he knew people he made uh, you think were important simply because he knew them. Navasky wrote a monthly column on publishing for the New York Times and managed an unsuccessful Senate campaign by former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark. In 1977, he was hired to edit The Nation, a century-old publication often cash poor but rich in dissension. Columnists such as Alexander Cockburn and Christopher Hitchens were as likely to attack each other as to take on conservatives. That Genial Navasky himself was often criticized, whether for being too cheap with his employees, the wily and parsimonious Victor Navasky, his friend and, uh, and nation contributor Kevin Trillian called him, or for being too nice. In fact, the only thing I don't like about Victor is the fact that everybody likes him, Hitchens, who quit the nation in 2002, once said. I think he should have made some more enemies by now. But circulation more than tripled during his time, and Avasky and the nation did get some people good and angry in 1979 when the magazine obtained an early copy of former President Ford's memoir and printed a long story that included excerpts. In a legal battle still influential in copyright cases, publisher Harper and Rowe sued for infringement and prevailed before the U.S. Supreme Court. The case had a moment of deep irony. Before the Supreme Court decision, an appeals court in New York had sided with the nation. The decision was written by Judge Irving Kaufman, who decades earlier had enraged Navasky and others on the left by imposing the death penalty on convicted spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. In 2005, Navasky won the George K. Polk Book Award for a Matter of Opinion, a Memoir and Passionate Defense of Free Expression. I was, I guess, what would be called a left liberal, although I never thought of myself as all that left, Navasky wrote on his memoir. I believe in civil liberties and civil rights and civil liberties. I favored racial integration. I thought responsibility for the international tensions of the Cold War was equally distributed between the United States and the USSR. 
It was Victor Navasky, award-winning author, journalist by Hillel Itali. From the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 30, 2023. Itali writes for the Associated Press. All right, and here is a, another obituary. This is from the Los Angeles Times for Friday, February 10, 2023. Bert Bacharach, 1928 to 2023, hailed as one of the greatest pop music composers by Dennis McClellan. At the Brill Building, the legendary songwriter's mecca on Broadway in New York City, composer Bert Bacharach first teamed with lyricist Hal David in 1956. Over the next decade, the two helped define the broad reaches of popular music, with a run of hit songs that poured from the radio, added depth and emotion to films, and evoked memories with listeners. Through their collaboration, Bacharach emerged as a commanding figure in popular music as a composer, arranger, and record producer whose musically sophisticated songs had cross-generational appeal. A multiple Grammy and Oscar winner, Bacharach died of natural causes Wednesday at home in Los Angeles with his family by his side. His publicist, Tina uh, Browsom, confirmed to the Times on Thursday. Bert Bacharach, the very name is a synonym for pop music success in the 1980s, wrote Leonard uh, Feather, the Times' former jazz critic. Composer Paul Williams said Bacharach set a high bar for songwriters like himself. He, it was complex yet elegant, a combination that produced hit after hit. The iconic songs that he wrote with lyricist Hal David and others are an indelible part of our culture. The beneficiaries of the Bacharach-David partnership were simply staggering. Gene Pitney, Only Love Can Break a Heart, 24 Hours from Tulsa, Jerry Butler, Make It Easy on Yourself, Bobby Vinton, Blue on Blue, Jack Jones, Wives and Lovers, Tom Jones, What's New, Pussycat, Dusty Springfield, The Look of Love, Wishing and Hopin', Herb Albert, This Guy's in Love with You, Jackie DeShannon, What the World Needs Now is Love, and B.J. Thomas, Raindrops Can Fall in on My Head, among others. But Bacharach and David are most closely associated with Dion Warwick, a talented young backup singer whom they initially listed to sing on their demo records. Beginning with Don't Make Me Over in late 1962, Warwick scored with a, new, with a slew of Bacharach David songs, including Walk On By, You'll Never Get to Heaven If You Break My Heart, Anyone Who Had a Heart, I Say a Little Prayer, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, Alfie, Promises, Promises, I'll Never Fall in Love Again, Message to Michael, and Trains, Boats, and Planes. We were lucky, Bacharach told the Chicago Tribune in 1987. It was a case of all the right people in the right place at the right time. Hal and I found the perfect partnership, and Dion was the perfect voice for our songs. Singer and music historian Michael Feinstein told the Times in 2011 that Bacharach and David were absolutely the greatest songwriters of their generation, standing shoulder to shoulder with the most treasured American composers. Music historian and journalist Paul Green said Bacharach, uh, the winner of three Oscars and six Grammys, was one of the greatest composers in pop music history. Bacharach was also given the Recording Academy's 2008 Lifetime Achievement Award, the 1997 Grammys Trustees Award, and was presented with the Gershwin Prize by President Obama. 
Bachrach and David are, in some ways, the bridge between the great American songbook writers from the 1930s and the contemporary writers of, from the rock area, Green said. And in the 1960s, when there were two district, distinct markets, music for kids and music for adults, Bachrach and David uniquely appealed to both, Green said. Unlike most songwriters who are not recognized in public, Bachrach became a well-known performer and recording artist in his own right. As a piano-playing singer, he appeared in sold-out concerts and starred in his own TV specials, including the Emmy Award-winning Singer Presents Burt Bacharach in 1971. He was not a great singer, but he was a charming performer, Feinstein said. He knew how to put an entertaining show together. With backup singers, great orchestration, it was a great theatrical show. So he compensated for his own vocal shortcomings by creating a very entertaining, musically rich concert. The boyishly handsome Bachrock, whose aura of glamour benefited from his 1965 marriage to actress Angie Dickinson, continued to tour in concert well into his later years. During their 1960s heyday, Bacharach and David also worked in film and shared Academy Award nominations for the titles What's New Pussycat and Alfie and for the song The Look of Love from Casino Royale. In 1970, Bacharach won an Oscar for his score for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, shared another with David for their hit song from that film, Raindrops Can Falling on My Head, and won a third for Best That You Can Do from the 1981 Dudley Moore comedy Arthur. Arthur. The duo also worked on Broadway, writing the music and lyrics for Promises, Promises, the long-running 1968 hit musical comedy whose book was written by Neil Simon. In 1970, the Carpenter scored a number one hit with Bacharach and David's They Long to Be, Close to You, and The Fifth Dimension had a number two hit with One Less Bell to Answer. But the celebrated songwriting team broke up after collaborating on the 1973 musical remake of Lost Horizon. After that critically drubbed box office failure, Bacharach recalled in a 23 Associated Press interview, I didn't want to write with Hal anybody or anybody. It became a problem because we had a commitment to record Dion for her next album. I didn't feel like doing it, and that's wrong. Dion didn't get recorded, and she sued us. And Hal, to protect himself, sued me. It was just ugly and stupid on my part. The lawsuits were settled, and all three later reunited. David died at 91 in 2012. Bachrock's post-David collaborators included, included lyricist Carol Bayer Sager, who married, whom he married in 1982 after he and Dickinson divorced. Among Bachrock and Sager's hits are the Oscar-winning Best That You Can Do, which they co-wrote with Christopher Cross and Peter Allen for Arthur. The couple also wrote That's What Friends Are For, a 1982 song for the film Night Shift that was introduced by Rod Stewart. A 1985 cover version of that song recorded by Warwick and Friends, Elton John Gladstone and Stevie Wonder, benefited the American Foundation for AIDS Research and became a number one hit. Burt Bacharach was one of the greatest songwriters of our time, a true legend, Sager said in a statement to the Times. The originality of his rhythms, the greatness of his melodies, are brilliant and unique. It was an honor for me to write the songs I did with Burt. Bacharach and Sager, who later divorced, 
also wrote the 1982 single Heartlight with Neil Diamond, and they collaborated with Bruce Roberts on Making Love, the title track of the 1982 film, which became a hit for Roberta Flack. Bacharach, who but then owned a stable of racehorses, underwent a renaissance in the 1990s, a time in which the hit movie My Best Friend's Wedding featured a rousing rendition of I Say a Little Prayer in a restaurant scene. He also teamed with singer-songwriter Elvis Costello on the 1998 album Painted from Memory, which resulted in the duo winning the Grammy for Best Pop Collaboration with vocals for their song I Still Have That Other Girl. A box set, The Songs of Bachrock and Costello, is due to be released March 3rd. In Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery in 1997, Bacharach made the first of three cameo appearance, appearances in, the, uh, in actor-comedian Mike Myers' 1960s spy movie spoofs. An only child, Bert Freeman Bacharach was born May 12, 1928 in Kansas City, Missouri. His father, Bert, was a department store clothing buyer who later became a syndicated uh, newspaper columnist. His mother, Irma, was a painter and occasional songwriter. In 1932, the family moved to Kew Gardens in Queens, New York, where Bert began taking piano lessons in elementary school. People always think that I was this child prodigy on the piano, that I just couldn't wait to sit down and practice, Bacharach said. But you want to know the truth? I hated it. In fact, I only did it to please my mother. She was the one who encouraged me. In high school, Bacharach and some friends formed a 10-piece band that played at parties and local dances. After graduating from Forest Hills High School, he studied music at McGill University in Montreal. He later studied, uh, studied under French classical composer Daryl Milhoud at the Manet School of Music in New York. After a stint in the Army, Bacharach played piano in nightclubs in and around New York and became an accompanist and arranger for singers such as Vic Damone, the Ames brothers, Polly Bergen, and Paula Stewart, who became his first wife in 1953. After he returned to songwriting, Bacharach and David had their first hit together in 1957 with Marty Robbins' recording of The Story of My Life, which was followed by a 1958 hit for Perry Como, Magic Moments. Before he and David began writing songs together exclusively, Bacharach teamed with other lyricists, including Bob Hilliard, Any Day Now, Tower of Strength, and David's brother Mac and Barney Williams, Baby It's You. For a few years, beginning in 1958, Bacharach also toured with legendary German-born actress and singer Marlene Diedrich as her conductor, arranger, and pianist. We traveled the world together, he told the Times of London in 2000. And though she could be hard on those who worked for her, she was very generous to me. Though his songs helped form the soundtrack of a tumultuous era, Bacharach's music was largely apolitical until later in life, when his songs began touching on school shootings, the 9-11 terror attacks, and racial intolerance. He said as he looked backward, he realized that some of his earlier songs, including What the World Needs Now, were likely a response to the Vietnam War. In 2016, Bacharach wrote Dancing with Your Shadow, a tribute to his daughter Nikki, who struggled with Asperger's Syndrome and took her own life in 2007. The song was recorded by Sheryl Crow. That same year, 
Bachrock scored the soundtrack of the award-winning film A Boy Called Poe, story of an over story of an overworked father trying to care for a son who has autism. In 2018, Bacharach and Cuban musician Rudy Perez wrote and recorded Live to See Another Day, which raised money for the Sandy Hook Promise, a nonprofit that uh, works to protect children from gun violence. The next year, he released Blue Umbrella, a five-song collaboration with Grammy-winning writer Daniel Tashian. His projects with Tashian and Steve uh, Sater earned him additional Grammy nominations in 2021 and 22, respectively. Bacharach is survived by his fourth wife, Jane Hansen, and their children, Oliver and Raleigh, and son Christopher from his marriage to Sager. That was Bert Bacharach, 1928-2023, hailed as one of the greatest pop music compro- composers by Dennis McClellan from the Los Angeles Times, uh, Friday, February 10, 2023. McClellan is a former Times staff writer. All right, now here is a follow-up article to Mr. Bacharach. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 10, 2023. What the world needs now. Cool, sophisticated, and elegant. 20 Essential Songs from Burt Bacharach by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic. Music poured out of Burt Bacharach like martinis out of an ice-cold shaker. For more than half a century, the composer, producer, conductor, and sometime performer provided the soundtrack for a persuasive and accessible idea of American sophistication on the radio, in movies, on television, and on Broadway. Bacharach, who died uh, on Wednesday at age 94, used his songs to toy with harmony and rhythm and to sneak elements of jazz and classical music into into his uh, parade of pop. Yet to listen to one of his dozens and dozens of classic tunes, which he wrote with lyricists including his most steadfast collaborator Hal David and his ex-wife Carol Bayer Sager, was never to feel intimidated by the expertise that close listeners knew he was showing off. Here, in chronological order, are 20 of his finest songs. 1. The Drifters, Mexican Divorce, 1962. After crafting a witty arrangement to illustrate Bob Hillard's lyric about an old adobe house where you leave your past behind, Bacharach met Dionne Warwick, then a background singer, at the recording session for this Drifters tune. 2. Dionne Warwick, Don't Make Me Over, 1962. Bacharach and David's first hit with Warwick can still startle you with its blend of romantic desperation and rock rib defiance. No wonder Warwick borrowed its title for a recent documentary about her life and career. 3. Jackie DeShannon, What the World Needs Now is Love, 1965. Listen to the way this waltz time classic moves between the certainty of the chorus and the uncertainty of the verse. It's as though the music itself are convincing DeShannon that what she's singing is true. Number 4. Dionne Warwick, Alfie, 1967. One of Bacharach's trickiest melodies, and the one he identified as his personal favorite, was also one of his most interpreted. Yet nobody navigated the song's unusual intervals as crispy as Warwick did. 5. Dusty Springfield, The Look of Love, 1967. 
Has any film comedy ever yielded a song sexier than Springfield's sultry invitation to take a lover's vow and seal it with a kiss? Composed for the 1967 James Bond spoof, Casino Royale, the look of love literally defines the concept of bedroom eyes. 6. Aretha Franklin, I Say a Little Prayer, 1968. Franklin's lead vocals cooks, obviously, but pay attention to how much fun the sweet inspirations are having with Bachrock's melody on backgrounds. 7. Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, This Guy's in Love with You, 1968. A comically straightforward sentiment becomes an improbable dramatic proclamation. 8. Dion Warwick, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Warwick famously disliked this sprightly character sketch about a failed actress who ditches cutthroat L.A. for a quieter hometown, or at least she did until it earned her for her first Grammy. 9. Isaac Hayes, Walk On By, 1969 For all their complexity, Bacharach's structures were exceedingly tidy, which is why Hayes blew so many minds with the 12-minute psychedelic soul odyssey he made of Walk On By. Among those minds, the RZA, who sampled Hayes' version in the Wu-Tang Clan's I Can't Go to Sleep, and Beyoncé, who did the same in her 6-inch. 10. B.J. Thomas, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, 1969. An Oscar winner, a number one hit, and a Bacharach specialty. A happy song that sounds sad, or is it the other way around? 11. The Carpenters, They Long to Be Close to You, 1970. Instantly recognizable from its opening piano picks, the sibling duo's first chart topper is a master classic in yearning whose gorgeous melody credibly embodies David's lyric about angels sprinkling moon dust. See also Stevie Wonder's live talk box rendition from the David Frost show in 1972, later sampled by Frank Ocean on 2016's Blonde. 12. The Fifth Dimension. One Less Bell to uh, Answer. 1970. Swanky grown-up soul music in no hurry to get anywhere. 12. Bert Bachrock, Something Big. 1973. Bachrock wasn't a powerful singer, powerhouse singer by any means, but his laid-back croon had an undeniable vibe, as heard in this gently philosophical bossa nova, in which he compares himself to a grain of sand that wants to be a rolling stone. 14. Luther Vandross' A House Is Not A Home, 1981, an R&B slow jam so perfect that Kanye West sampled it for his song, Slow Jams. Vandross' epic reading of this jilted lover's lament carried Bacharach's songwriting to new emotional heights. 15. Christopher Cross, Arthur's theme, Best That You Can Do, 1981. Bacharach's second Oscar-winning tune took Dudley Moore's drunken playboy character more seriously than the character did himself. 16. Naked Eyes, Always Something There to Remind Me, 1983. First cut in the early 1960s, this bouncy meditation on the painfulness of memory could still pull heartstrings two decades later. 17. Dion and Friends, That's What Friends Are For, 1985. A Song of the Year Grammy winner for Bacharach and Sager, That's What Friends Are For, offers Warwick and her famous friends, Stevie Wonder, Gladys Knight, and Elton John, all the room they needed to play. 18. Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald, On My Own, 1986. 
as good as a song as anyone's ever written about the reality of romance in middle age. 19. Elvis Costello, God Give Me Strength, 1996. The post-punk troubadour teamed with Bachrock to write this as the sumptuous ballad for Alison Anders' sort of Carole King biopic, Grace of My Heart. Then they kept at it and made a whole album of original tunes, 1998's Painted from Memory. 20. Ronald Isley, Anyone Who Had a Heart, 2003. Bachrock followed the Costello collab by drafting Isley to sing an album of his classics, including this one, in which Isley runs the full gamut from whispering to pleading. That was What the World Needs Now by Mikhail Wood, a pop music critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 10, 2023. All right, we got a couple of the Israel stories now. This first one is from the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, February 4th, 2023. Israel disputes artifacts returned by U.S. by Elon Ben Zion. Bethlehem, West Bank. An ivory spoon dating back 2,700 years that was recently repatriated to the Palestinian Authority from the United States has sparked a dispute with Israel's new far-right government over the cultural heritage in the occupied West Bank. The class brings into focus the political sensitivities surrounding archaeology in the Middle East, where Israelis and Palestinians each use ancient uh, artifacts to support their claims over the land. Israel's ultra-nationalist heritage minister has ordered officials to examine the legality of the U.S. government's historic repatriation of the artifact to the Palestinians last month and is calling for annexing archaeology in the occupied West Bank. The artifact, a cosmetic spoon made of ivory and believed to have been uh, plundered from a site on the, in the West Bank, was seized in late 2021 by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office as part of a deal with New York billionaire and hedge fund manager Michael Steinhardt. It was one of 180 artifacts illegally looted and purchased by Steinhardt that he surrounded, surrendered as part of an agreement to avoid prosecution. American officials handed an artifact over to the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism and, the Antiqui and Antiquities on January 5th and what was the U.S. State Department's Office of Palestinian Affairs said was the first event of such repatriation by the U.S. to the Palestinians. Dozens of Steinhardt's surrendered artifacts have already been repatriated to Italy, Bulgaria, Greece, Turkey, Jordan, Libya, and Israel. This spoon is the only item ever to be repatriated to the Palestinians. The repatriation coincided with the first weeks of Israel's new government, which is composed of ultra-nationalists who, who see the West Bank as the biblical heartland of the Jewish people and inextricably linked to the state of Israel. Heritage Minister uh, Amihai Eliyahu's office said last week that the legality of the repatriation is being examined by archaeology staff officer, the archaeology staff officer with the legal counsel, who will examine all aspects of the matter, including the Oslo Accords that the U.S. has signed. The case underscores how archaeology and cultural heritage are intertwined with the competing claims of the Israelis and Palestinians in the decades-long conflict. 
any artifact that we know that it comes out of illegally from Palestine, from Palestine, we have the right to have it back, said Jihad Yassin, Director General of Excavations and Museums in the Palestinian Tourism and Antiquities Ministry. Each artifact says a story from the history of this land. The ministry is part of the Palestinian Authority, the government established as part of the Oslo Accords in the 1990s that exercises limited autonomy in parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Those agreements between Israel and the Palestinians were supposed to include coordination on a raft of issues, including archaeology. But the agreements have largely unraveled. Yassin said that the archaeology committee has not yet met in about two has not met in about two decades, and that there is virtually zero coordination between Israel and the Palestinians concerning antiquities theft prevention uh, in the West Bank. We are trying to we are we try to do our best to protect these archaeological sites, but we face difficulties, he said. According to court documents, Steinhardt brought the ivory cosmetic spoon in 2003 from Israeli antiquities dealer Gil Chaya for $6,000. The artifact has had no uh, pro uh, provenance, paperwork detailing uh, when it came from and how it had entered the dealer's inventory, but Chaya said the object was from the West Bank town of El Koum, K-O-U-M, which is under Palestinian Authority control. Another artifact believed to have been looted from the same town a red uh, carmelian sunfish amulet that dates to circa 600 BCE remains missing, according to the district attorney's office. Steinhardt has yet to locate, it, locate the item, but if it is found, it will be repatriated to the Palestinians, the office said. American authorities returned 28 objects to Israel last year. Several of the items returned are believed to have been looted from the West Bank. The Israel Antiquities Authority declined comment on the artifact's repatriation to the Palestinians. Heritage Minister Eliyahu, a religious ultranationalist and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government, now in charge of the country's Antiquities Authority, denies the existence of a Palestinian people. Since taking office, he has accused the Palestinian Authority of committing national terrorism and erasing heritage at an archaeological site in a Palestinian-controlled area near the West Bank city of Nablus. It remains unclear what effect, if any, a review by the ministry's legal counsel could have. It appears unlikely Israel could confiscate the artifact from the Palestinians, but a legal opinion against the move could potentially complicate future reparations, repatriations. Earlier this week, Eliyahu said he would be giving the Israeli Antiquities Authority full control over archaeological sites, cultural heritage, and theft prevention throughout the West Bank, a move that critics say would, in effect, apply Israeli law over occupied territory in breach of international law. Currently, archaeological excavations and antiquities in the West Bank are managed by the Civil Administration's Archaeological Staff Officer, which is part of the Defense Ministry. Israel has not formally annexed the West Bank, and the territory is treated as occupied and is governed under military law. Eliyahu's office declined repeated interview requests. Yassin said that for the time being, the artifact will remain at the ministry, where it will be studied. Then he said it will be displayed at one of the West Bank's museums. 
It is not the only one, Yasin said. It is the beginning. That was Israel Disputes Artifacts Returned by U.S. by Elon Ben-Zion from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, February 4th, 2023. Zion writes for the Associated Press. All right, and here is the next one. From the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, uh, February 4, 2023, Jewish Settlers Report Expansion in West Bank by Tia Goldenberg. Jerusalem. The number of Jewish settlers in the occupied West Bank now exceeds half a million, a pro-settler group said Thursday, with leaders predicting faster population growth under Israel's new ultra-nationalist government. A report by WestBankJewishPopulationStats.com showed that, based on official figures, the settler population grew to 502,991 as of January 1st, rising more than 2.5% in 12 months and nearly 16% over the last five years. We've reached a huge hallmark, said Baruch Gordon, the director of the group and a resident of the Beit, e Beit El Settlement. We're here to stay. Israel's new government, made up of ultra-nationalist parties that oppose Palestinian statehood, has made Jewish settlements ex settlement expansion its top priority. Officials have pledged to legalize wildcat outposts that have enjoyed tacit government support and to ramp up approval and construction of settler homes around the West Bank. I think that in the coming years of this government, there will be more building there than there has been in the last 20 years of government, Gordon said. Settlements have flourished under every Israeli government, including at the height of the peace process in the 1990s. Even Israel's previous government, which included parties supporting Palestinian statehood along with those opposing it, continued to build settlements. The report comes as a new spasm of violence is shaking the region and days after a visit by U.S. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken, who pledged support for an independent Palestinian state. The settler population has continued to grow under the Biden administration, despite renewed American appeals to rein in construction following the end of the Trump administration's hands-off approach. The settler population report does not include annexed East Jerusalem, which is home to more than 200,000 settlers. The West Bank and East Jerusalem are home to some 3 million Palestinians. Israel captured the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip in the 1967 Mideast War. The Palestinians seek those territories for an independent state. Although Israel withdrew troops and several thousand settlers from Gaza in 2005, it has changed, charged ahead with settling, settlement building in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Dozens of settlements dot the territory, some as small as, few as, as a few mobile homes and other sprawling cities with malls and public transportation. Much of the international community views the settlement as illegal and an obstacle to peace. The Palestinians see them as a land grab that undermines their chances to establish a viable, conti continuous state. All settlements are illegal. There's no legitimacy for settlements or the presence of settlers in the Palestinian territories, said Nabil Abu Rudaneh, a spokesman for the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. The increase in the number of settlers is the result of Israeli-governed policies that did not believe in a, the two-state solution, which would create an independent Palestinian state next to Israel. 
Israel claims that the West Bank is disputed rather than occupied territory, saying that de terminology denies the Jewish people's historical presence in the land. It argues that the fate of the settlements should be part of negotiations to bring about an end to the conflict. Peace efforts have been moribund for nearly 15 years, during which time Israel continued to establish facts on the ground uh, with more settlement construction and political rivalry among the Palestinians' complicated peacemaking. The settlers and their uh, many supporters in government, uh, in government view the West Bank as the biblical and historical heartland of the Jewish people and are opposed to any partition. Palestinians and Israelis in the West Bank live under a two-tiered legal system that grants settlers special status and applies much of Israeli, Israeli law to them, including the right to vote in Israeli elections and the ability to access certain public services. Palestinians live under Israeli military rule and do not enjoy the legal rights and protections afforded to settlers. The open-ended military occupation has led three well-known human rights groups to conclude that Israel, Israel is committing the international crime of apartheid by systematically denying Palestinians equal rights. Israel rejects those accusations as an attack on its existence as a Jewish-majority state and points to the achievements of its citizens of Palestinian origin to counter the argument. The increasingly authoritarian and unpopular Palestinian Authority, established through agreements with Israel in the 1990s, administers part of the parts of the West Bank, while the Islamic militant group Hamas controls Gaza, which is under an Israeli-Egyptian blockade. That was Jewish settlers report expansion in West Bank by Tia Goldenberg from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, February 4, 2023. Tia Goldenberg writes for the Associated Press. All right, and here's another international story from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 9, 2023. Give us wings. Zelensky's appeal for jets. Ukraine's president makes surprise visits to Britain and France to ask for warplanes and ammunition by Jill Lawless and Sylvie Corbett. Paris. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky sought Western support for his country in surprise visits to Britain and France on Wednesday, pushing for fighter jets to battle Russian invaders in a dramatic speech to the UK Parliament and then flying to Paris to meet the French and German leaders over dinner at the Elise Palace. The embattled leaders European tour and uh, pleas for more advanced weapons came as Ukraine braces for an expected Russian offensive and has its own plans to retake land held by Moscow's forces. Western support has been key to Kiev's surprisingly stiff uh, defense and the two sides are engaged in grinding battles. Zelensky thanked the British people for their support since day one of Moscow's invasion nearly a year ago as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said fighter jets were part of the conversation about aid to Ukraine. Nothing is off the table, he said at an evening news conference at a British army base. We must arm Ukraine in the short term, but we must bolster Ukraine for the long term. Zelensky and Ukraine need needs all the kinds of supplies, not just planes, but also ammunition and long-range missiles. Without this, there would be stagnation, which will not bring anything good, he said, calling his visit to Britain very fruitful. 
Then it was off to Paris for dinner with French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Zelensky was greeted Wednesday night on the steps of the Elise Palace with a friendly embrace by Macron and then all three leaders headed inside. The visit marks a turnaround in Zelensky's relations toward France and Germany, which earlier in the war were viewed by many in Ukraine as not doing enough to help. Ukraine can count on France, its European partners and allies to win the war. Russia cannot and must not win, Macron said before their working dinner. He added that they would discuss the, uh, the operational needs of Ukraine. Scholz indicated that Zelensky will attend a summit of European Union leaders in Brussels starting Thursday, which he described as a signal of European solidarity and community. Wednesday's travel was only the second foreign trip Zelensky has made since Russia invaded on February 24. In December, the Ukrainian leader visited uh, Washington where he met with President Biden and addressed the U.S. Congress. His day began when he arrived on a Royal Air Force plane in London and was greeted on the tarmac with an embrace from Sunak. They held talks at the Prime Minister's 10 Downing Street residence before Zelensky's speech to lawmakers in the 900-year-old Westminster Hall, the oldest and on a cold winter day, unheated part of Parliament. London has stood with Kiev since day one, he said, repeatedly thanking Britons for their aid. The UK has sent Ukraine more than $2.5 billion in weapons and equipment. Wearing his trademark olive drab sweatshirt, he urged allies to deliver jets to Ukraine, saying combat aircraft would be wings for freedom. Zelensky presented the Speaker of the House of Commons with a Ukrainian Air Force helmet inscribed by a Ukrainian pilot. We have freedom. Give us wings to protect it. The president was trying to soften Allies' reluctance to send advanced fighter jets, both because they are complex to fly and for fear of escalating the war. The UK has repeatedly said it's not practical to provide Ukraine with British warplanes, but in a ship, the government said Wednesday that it was actively looking at whether Ukraine could be sent Western jets and was in discussion with our allies about it. Britain also said it would train Ukrainian pilots in Britain on NATO standard fighter jets within weeks. Sunak's spokesman, Max Blaine, said the government was exploring what jets we may be able to give over the coming years, but had not made a decision on whether to send F-35 or Typhoons. We think it is right to provide both short-term equipment that can help win the war now, but also look to the medium to long-term to make sure Ukraine has every possible capacity it requires, he said. Ukraine has sought Western fighter jets since early in the war to bolster its its force of Soviet-made MiG-29 and Su fighters. The success of its air force in defending its skies and territory, despite Russia's bigger numbers, helped push back Moscow's initial assault. The Russian embassy in London strongly warned the UK against supplying the warplanes, saying Britain uh, would bear responsibility for another twist of escalation and the ensuing military political consequences for the European continent and the entire world. Macron has said France hasn't ruled out sending fighter jets, but set conditions, including not leading 
uh, to an escalation of tensions of using the aircraft to touch Russian soil and not resulting in weakening the capacities of the French army. Sunak and Zelensky flew by helicopter to Lulworth Camp, a base in southwest England where they met Ukrainian troops being trained on the Challenger 2 tanks in uh, the UK is sending as part of the hundreds that uh, Kiev says it needs. More than 10,000 Ukrainian troops have been trained in the UK and Britain says it will train 20,000 more in 2023. I am proud that today we will expand that training from soldiers to Marines and fighter jet pilots, ensuring Ukraine has a military able to defend its interests well into the future, Sunak said. Zelensky also went to Buckingham Palace where he met with King Charles III who greeted him with a broad smile and a warm handshake before they had tea. The king told the president that we've all been worried about you and thinking about your country for so long. In his parliament speech, Zelensky noted that Charles was a qualified military pilot. The king is an Air Force pilot, Zelensky said, and in Ukraine today, every Air Force pilot is a king. Zelensky was greeted with applause, cheers, and cries of Slava Ukraini, glory to Ukraine, as he arrived in Parliament where his cause has wide support. He had addressed the UK Parliament remotely in March, two weeks after the start of the invasion. He echoed World War II leader Winston Churchill's famous Never Surrender speech, vowing that Ukrainians will fight till the end at sea in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. On Wednesday, he recalled how on a pre-war visit to London, he sat in Churchill's chair in his subterranean wartime headquarters and had a feeling that he finally understands. It was the feeling of how bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. In past wars, evil lost, he told the UK lawmakers. We know Russia will lose and we know victory will change the world. He also urged stronger sanctions against Moscow until Russia is deprived of any possibility to finance this war. Coinciding with the visit, the UK government announced new sanctions against six entities that Britain said supplied equipment to the Russian military. SCT, a manufacturer of Russian drones and parts for helicopters used against Ukraine, was among them. The London visit came as Russian forces shelled areas of eastern Ukraine in what Kiev authorities believe is part of a thrust by the Kremlin's forces before the invasion anniversary. Moscow, meanwhile, believes Ukraine is preparing its own battlefield push. That was Give Us Wings, Zelensky's Appeal for Jets, by Jill Lawless and Sylvie Corbet, from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January, February 9, 2023. Lawless and Corbet write for the Associated Press. All right, now we've got one here at home from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 9, 2023. Feinstein deserves to go out gracefully by George Skelton in Sacramento. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's quick endorsement of Representative Adam B. Schiff's Senate candidacy was huge, far more significant than an ordinary endorsement. But Schiff's main Senate rival, Representative Katie Porter, Democrat of Irvine, seems to have a more salable uh, message to voters. An unlikely third contender, Representative Barbara Lee, Democrat of Oakland, hasn't formally announced her candidacy, but when she does, she'll face long odds. 
At least that's how I see the early jockeying for California Senator Dianne Feinstein's seat. Back to all that below. First, about Feinstein. Virtually, everyone expects her not to run for re-election next year. She's 89 and would be 91 if re-elected. Age itself is not the big problem. But her reported diminishing cognitive agility and her ability to adequately serve a six-full-year term seems to be a disqualifier. As perhaps an indication of her frailty, Feinstein watched President Biden's State of the Union address on TV at home Tuesday night rather than attending Washington's biggest annual event in person in the packed House chamber. She prefers to watch it on TV. She can see it uh, the way most people see it, said her spokesman Adam Russell. She has both attended and watched from home in the past, he said. Russell said Feinstein will announce her decision whether to seek re-election in the coming months. Her decision seems obvious, however. The senator hasn't given the slightest hint that she might run, and she hasn't raised any campaign money. Her political kit, uh, kitty is almost dry. But she apparently hasn't informed even close insiders of any decision. I don't think she has told a soul, one told me. There's a thought that Feinstein may think she's doing a good job. Actually, she is performing okay, thanks to a skilled staff, and hasn't fully concluded that retirement is called for. Will an intervention be necessary? If Feinstein did run, she almost certainly would suffer an embarrassing defeat, a sad ending to a fabulous career as arguably the best California senator ever. She's the longest-serving California senator, 32 years, and is the oldest current senator. She deserves to serve out the rest of her term with deference and respect. Schiff and Porter are granting that her that, Schiff in particular. The longtime Burbank congressman talked with her personally before announcing his candidacy and received her blessing. But both Schiff and Porter insist they'll run for Feinstein's seat regardless of whether she steps aside. All that major plays, all the major players are Democrats. A Republican has no chance of winning a Senate in seat in deep blue California. Pelosi endorsed Schiff one week after he announced, conditioned on Feinstein not running. Schiff knows well the nexus between a strong democracy and a strong economy, Pelosi said in her statement. He has focused on strengthening our democracy with justice and on building an economy that works for all. That undoubtedly was written by Schiff's campaign gurus and, frankly, linking democracy with the economy while maybe, a marketable in acad maybe marketable academia seems like mixing metaphors when asking everyday voters for support. But it echoes Schiff's core message. Our democracy is under assault from MAGA extremists, and our economy is simply not working for millions of Americans who are working harder than ever just to get by, Schiff said in his Senate campaign announcement. The fight for our democracy and working families is part of the same struggle. Because if our democracy isn't delivering for Americans, they'll look for alternatives, like a dangerous demagogue. Schiff obviously is trying to cash in politically on the prominence he has earned as a leading Democratic com combatant of Donald Trump. He led the first impeachment of the then-president and was a member of the Congressional Committee that investigated the January 6, 2021 Capitol insurrection that led to Trump's referral to the Justice Department for a criminal investigation. Fighting for democracy seems abstract as a campaign pitch. 
But if Trump does follow through with another presidential bid, the former president could offer a ripe target for Schiff, a House member since 2000. Early in the campaign, saving democracy is great for activists who are still afraid of Donald Trump, says Democratic consultant Rose Kapolzinski, who was chief strategist for former Senator Barbara Boxer. But for voters, they care about their own lives and how a candidate is going to make it better. They're going to want to hear about the economy, inflation, whether they can afford to send their kids to college. Porter's message is aimed more directly at the voters' top concern about the economy, coupled with distrust of the power elite in Washington and corporate America. California needs a warrior in Washington, the third-term congresswoman said in her announcement. I use whatever power I have to speak hard truths to the powers that be. That goes for taking on Wall Street and the big banks, big oil, and big pharma. But Pelosi's endorsement is priceless. Pelosi is not your average endorsement, Kapolzinski said. The consultant says the San Franciscans' great credibility in the Bay Area could help level the playing field against any Bay Area candidate like Lee. And having a woman who made history as speaker endorsing Schiff could make a difference to some female voters who are trying to figure out who to support. Pelosi also has a long, invaluable list of potential campaign donors Schiff could tap. She said she'll do anything we ask her, a Schiff insider told me. Lee, who would be the state's, the Senate's only black woman, doesn't have much campaign money. Schiff and Porter have lots and are prolific fundraisers. Lee is also probably too liberal, even for this state, and her age is problematic. She's 76, Schiff is 82, Porter is 49. These Senate seats don't come open often. Maybe once in a generation, it should be fun to watch. That was Feinstein Deserves to Go Out Gracefully by George Skelton in Sacramento from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 9, 2023. Okay, and now here is something from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, February 10, 2023. Italian model files civil lawsuit against Weinstein by Christian Martinez. An Italian model whose testimony led to a Los Angeles jury in December finding Harvey Weinstein guilty of rape has filed a civil suit against the fallen film producer. The woman, identified as Jane Doe 1, is suing Weinstein for sexual battery, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and other unnamed parties for negligence, according to a complaint filed in L.A. County Supreme Court on Thursday. In the complaint, the victim's attorneys wrote that he that had said unnamed parties fulfilled their duties and responsibilities, plaintiff would not have been uh, assaulted or raped. Harvey Weinstein has been convicted of raping Jane Doe 1. Her lawsuit seeks to recover compensation from him for the horrific rape she endured and all of the issues she has suffered through the past 10 years because of that rape, attorney David Ring said in a statement. We look forward to having Weinstein finally testify under oath in this case. Weinstein has always denied the allegations and maintained that he was never together with her in the Mr. C Hotel. Judah Engelmeyer, Weinstein's spokesman, said in a statement to the Times. Engelmeyer alleged that certain witnesses lied about crucial evidence that could have exonerated Mr. Weinstein. After his conviction, Weinstein filed a motion asking for a new trial. 
According to the suit, Weinstein 70 assaulted the women at the Mr. C. Beverly Hills Hotel after a film festival in 2013. The woman met Weinstein at an event but returned to her room alone. Weinstein showed up at the hotel unannounced and called her from the front desk or lobby and demanded that she tell him her room number, which she declined to do. Weinstein still appeared at her door and bullied his way into the room where the woman got assaulted. He grabbed me by the hair and forced me to do something I did not want to do, he told the, she told the Times in 2017. He then dragged me to the bathroom and forcefully raped me. The woman reported the assault to the Los Angeles Police Department in 2017 amid the start of the hashtag MeToo movement. After a trial that spanned weeks, Weinstein was convicted of forcible rape, forcible oral copulation, and sexual penetration by a foreign object in connection with the incident. Harvey Weinstein forever destroyed a part of me that night. I will never get that back, the woman said in a statement after the conviction. But I knew I had to see this through to the end. Hope Weinstein never sees the outside of a prison cell during his lifetime. However, the jury, which deliberated for more than nine days, acquitted Weinstein or could not reach a verdict on charges of rape and assault of three other women. Weinstein is serving a 23-year prison sentence for his 2020 conviction for rape and sexual assault in New York. He faces a 24-year sentence in connection with the Los Angeles County conviction pending the request of a new trial. It cannot be served until his New York sentence is completed in full. That was Italian Model Files civil lawsuit against Weinstein by Christian Martinez from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 10, 2023. Okay, now we have this special story from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, February 5th, 2023. After escaping a Jewish sect, he's fighting to free his family. The French group in Guatemala is accused of abuse by Leila Meyer, reporting from Richmond, Lazion, Le Le Israel. Yoel Levy has, had just woken up in his apartment outside Tel Aviv one Saturday last fall when he received a long-awaited phone call. It was his friend, Israel Amir, who was in southern Mexico for a rescue operation. I have my son, Amir told Levy. The young man shared an extraordinary past. Both are raised in Lev Tahur, a fringe Jewish sect that has fled from, the country, from country to country over the last decade on the run from authorities and child abuse allegations. Branded a cult by the Israeli government, the group is thought to have roughly 300 adherents scattered around the world. Levy escaped five years ago when he was 16. Amir fled a year later at 19, leaving behind the woman he said he was forced to marry, one of Levy's aunts and their infant son. Levy's mother and eight of his siblings remained in the group and he longed to see them again. He hadn't spoken with any of them since running away, but he had been working with a private team of attorneys and former Israeli intelligence officers trying to break up the group and bring its leaders to justice. Now the plan has come to a head. Amir explained that at dawn the previous day, he had accompanied Mexican police, Yiddish interpreters, and a former Mossad agent on a raid of two houses in the jungle. They brought, up, they brought out 30 Lev Tahor members, including his son. 
Amir told Levy that he helped authorities identify two wanted men who were arrested on suspicion of human trafficking. He also spotted Levy's 16-year-old brother. Levy went to his balcony and lit a cigarette to calm his nerves. I'm going to go there, he told Amir. I'm going to get him. One of Levy's earliest memories in his first, is his first haircut. It was a ritual ceremony led by Shlomo Hebrons, the founder of Lev Tahur, and an intimidating figure to a three-year-old raised to revere him. It took place in Hebron's apartment in uh, St. Ag Ag Agathe's Montmonts, a resort town north of Montreal that had become the group's latest refuge. Hebron's had taught at a Hasidic school in his native Israel before he started Lev Tahur in the 1980s, taking the name, which means pure heart, from a psalm. Keeping with his belief that Jews shouldn't inhabit Israel until the arrival of the Messiah, he moved the group to New York. He ran a religious school in Brooklyn, New York, but got in trouble after the family of a 13-year-old student reported the boy missing and accused Hal Bruns of brainwashing him. The boy reappeared two years later, saying he had left his family by choice. But in 1994, uh, Hal Bruns was convicted of kidnapping and served two years in prison before being deported to Israel. He left for Canada shortly after and won asylum on the grounds that he had been a victim of persecution in Israel for his religious opposition to the country's existence as a Jewish state. Levi's mother and father had followed Hebrons to New York when they, where they got married, and then, and then to Canada. They settled in a neighborhood with about 50 other Lev Tahor families, including his maternal grandparents and their other children. Levi, born in 2001, was his parents' second child. Yiddish was the group's language of choice, and the only one Levi spoke well. Boys and girls studied in separate schools and did not intermingle. A few people had jobs outside the community, but families relied on child welfare payments and charity. Levy's father was often away soliciting donations. In some respects, the group was like many ultra-Orthodox sects. Even its rejection of Zionism was not unique. But Lev Dahor took modesty, gender segregation, dietary restrictions, and rejection of secular culture to extremism. Members were expected to marry in their mid-teens. Store-bought chicken was banned out of the belief that genetically modified animals were not kosher. English was not taught. While men were traditional ultra-orthodox gab, a garb including white, white fur hats known as uh, shtetls, the dress code for women was highly unusual. Long black robes that led some media to call the group the Jewish Taliban. Children were taught to look at the ground while walking to school to avoid seeing non-Jewish neighbors or secular temptations such as swimming pools. Unlike Hasidic sects that connect to God through dancing, music, and other expressions of joy, adherents to Lev Tahors lived somberly. Even laughing was discouraged. Extremism veered into alleged abuse. The group would often separate children from their parents and place them with other families, according to several former members. Levy knew little about his parents and had tense relationships with his siblings. In Lev Tahor, children were raised to turn one another in for rule-breaking, which could lead to beatings. Nearly every day, someone in Levy's class was subject to corporal punishment, with a teacher once joking that he needed a mechanical hand to slap children for him. 
Levy said his cousin was beaten with a stick for glimpsing a neighbor's pool as he walked to school. None of this seemed extreme to Levy, at least not yet. It was the only life he knew. When he was around eight, Levy decided to, he liked the idea of wearing glasses, so he pretended his vision was faulty. When Levy was caught in the lie, Hellbrand said that he would be punished with a few pats. The entire school was called into a room with a stage where Levy says a teacher beat him with a belt for what seemed like half an hour. When it was over, Levy kissed the teacher's hand and as the children had been taught. He struggled to walk and his mother cried when she saw him. Later, with the community under investigation by Quebec authorities, Levy recalled a teacher instructed him and his classmates to answer no if they were, were ever, whether they were, they were ever hit. It doesn't count as a lie, said the teacher, explaining that it's what God wanted them to do. One Saturday in 2013, just before Levy's 12th birthday, his mother told them the community was moving because authorities were coming for the children. His family boarded a rented bus the next night to rural southern Ontario. It was Levy's first time on a highway, and he was too excited to sleep, looking out the window at passing semis. A few months later, the group took off again, and Levy found himself on an airplane to Guatemala. He was growing more curious about the outside world, and in small ways was beginning to question things he had been taught. When a man next to him ordered hummus and crackers, he felt a sudden craving, wondering why they weren't kosher. In Guatemala City, Lev Tahor members lived in two office buildings. Levy's family squeezed into two rooms with bunk beds and mattresses on the floor. A floor below him was 14-year-old Amir, whose family had recently arrived from Israel. There was a court across the street, and the uh, sight each morning of a van delivering handcuffed detainees raised more questions for Levy about Lev Tahor. He wondered whether his own life was any better than the lives of the prisoners. Uh, in 2016, after a police raid reportedly conducted at the behest of Israel, Israeli authorities searching for a missing child, the group picked up again. This time, members headed to a forested pop, uh, property Lev Tahor bought a couple of hours outside the city in a region called Santa Rosa. Families lived in huts made of tarps, wood, and tin. Every week, Levy was required to provide a detailed report of his schedule, including how long he had spent eating breakfast and talking with his siblings. Still, they managed to pick up some Spanish from Central Americans who had converted to Judaism and joined the group. Then tragedy struck. Levy's father got sick over the Sukkot holiday. Lev to her leaders initially forbade him to go to a hospital, insisting his family's faith in God would save him. By the time he got there, it was too late. He died of a septic shock and was buried in a clearing near the compound. Yehoshua Levy was 45. It wasn't long before Lev Tahor moved again, dispersing to southern and central Mexico in an attempt to evade Israeli authorities who leaders said were zeroing in on the group. Then came another death, one that would upend the community. In July 2017, during a ritual cleansing in a river, Halbrand's then 54 was swept away. Everyone returned to the group's base in Guatemala, and Helbrands was buried near Levy's father. Helbrands' son took control of Lev Tahor. Nachman Helbrands proved to be a harsher leader than his father, banning meat, fish, and even the local mangoes. 
Children as young as 12 are pushed into arranged marriages according to multiple former members of the group. At 16, Levy was on, was on the older side when the new leader matched him with a girl the same age. Levy didn't take the news well, but an uncle told him, It's your match and you need to take it. You can't say no. He was engaged that night. He couldn't stop thinking about how miserable his life had become. Nachman held friends had forced Levy's mother to remarry and placed most of her ten children with other families. Levy had been sent to live with one of the leaders and became his personal assistant. Defying orders to stay away from his mother, he would sometimes come to the entrance of her hut. If he was lucky, she would open the door for a few minutes. Other times he could hear her sobbing on the other side. Both Levy and his brother Mendy said a Lev to her official beat them for trying to visit her. One evening in fall 2018, with his wedding still pending, Levy decided to flee. He found the telephone number of a convert who had left the group. He sneaked into his mother's hut to call for help. Later at his home, he stuffed some clothes into a trash bag and anxiously waited until everyone fell asleep. About 2 a.m., he returned to his mother's hut and slid a short letter under the entrance. I'm going, and I'm not planning on to come back, it said. Levy stepped slightly over the crackling leaves. At the compound's gate, he told an armed guard he had permission to leave because he needed documents in Guatemala City. The guard led him past. He hitched a ride to a hotel where the convert picked him up. When he called his mother that morning, she wept. You should come back, she begged. It's the only Jewish place. Levi spent the first, his first few weeks of freedom in a community of Central American converts who had left, left Tahor. One gave him a smartphone, googling for the first time in Yiddish, Spanish, and the little English he knew. Levi discovered YouTube and learned that the U.S. president was a man named Donald Trump. One day he found out that his brother Mendy, who was 15 and recently engaged to his first cousin, was trying to flee Lev Tahor. Levy and one of the converts picked him up at a hotel in Guatemala City. The brothers flew to Quebec with the help from the Canadian Embassy. They were taken in by Tosh, a Hasidic community just outside Montreal, and each lived with his own foster family in apartments across from each other. Levy, Levy's English improved dramatically with episodes of Friends he watched on his phone, at first not realizing that the characters were actors. He learned that the world was made up of many more countries than the ones where he had lived. He also developed a taste for hamburgers and a passion for watching soccer. He began to feel he had been brought up on lies, one of the biggest that, he, that only true Jews belonged to Lev Tahor. Wondering why God would let such a group exist, he slowly rejected religion, shortening his traditional earlocks and using his phone on Shabbat. He found work at a Jewish community kitchen, but was fired for not taking prayer breaks. Many nights, Levy would spend hours scouring the internet to see what the outside world knew about Lev Tahor. One of the most detailed accounts he found was a 2014 documentary by the Canadian Broadcasting Corp that described how members, including his own family, had fled their homes in Quebec days before a judge acting on allegations of neglect ordered 14 children into foster care. 
The documentary also featured a former member who told authorities that he was 25 when he married a 15-year-old and that he was advised to punish boys by hitting them with a wire hanger. Shlomo Helbrands also appeared on camera, saying, I never married children against the law. In halting English, he also downplayed the use of corporal punishment. To say that no child ever receives a slap on his hand never and ever is false. But I can do <clears throat> but what I can do declare very strongly is that physical punishment of children we can use in our community a lot less than in the Western society. Levi also learned that in December 2018, Nachman Helbrands had been detained by Mexican authorities working with the FBI and deported to the United States. Federal prosecutors charged him and three others with kidnapping two children in New York and smuggling them into Mexico after their mother, Nachman's sister, fled the group. How is it possible, Levi wondered, that Lev Tahor had not been shut down? Several months into his new life, Levi flew to Israel to meet relatives he had never known. His pater paternal aunt, uh, Edith Baba, and her husband were worried he wouldn't know where to go when he landed, so they received special permission to wait for him on the tarmac. Yoel, Yoel, they shouted. They, they seemed shocked by their hugs. He seemed shocked by their hugs. The next day, at their home outside Tel Aviv, Levi asked to go to a barber to get rid of the rest of his earlocks. It was a Friday, and Passover was starting that night. I'll take you Sunday, his uncle said. Levi insisted. I want to do this now. As he spent time with relatives, Levi began, uh, Levi began uh, to learn about his parents. His father, Yehoshua, was 17 when he met Halbrands on a bus in Israel in the late 1980s. He had long been, a cur been curious about religion and soon was studying in a yeshiva in Jerusalem. There he met one of his, the earliest followers of Lev Tahor, the father of his future wife, Odell. In 1990, Levi and his fa father told him, his family that he was following Helbrands to New York. Yoshua was 27 when he married Odell. She was 15. After a relative, re uh, relative read that uh, Lev Tahor was being called the cult, the family begged him to return to Israel, but he said he was happy. Now three decades later, Levi was growing closer with his long-lost relatives. He decided to move to Israel and meant leaving his brother Mendy, who found himself unable to shake the belief, instilled by, uh, by Lev Tahor, that it was a sin to live there. Levi found work at a pharmacy and thought it pain, and pain, and though pained him to talk about his life in Lev Tahor, he started giving interviews on Israeli television about his Hebrew improved, as his Hebrew improved. By then, Amir, Levi's friend, had escaped from Lev Tahor and moved to Israel too. Amir wanted justice, tipped off that a former administrator at the Lev Tahor school in Quebec was visiting Israel. He, fled a, he filed a police report, and the man was arrested. Levy joined his friend in helping police, uh, helping police build a case. Prosecutors charged Elazar Rumpier with child abuse and assault, including overseeing the beating, Levy said, he had received on stage all those years ago. But in late 2020, Rumpler fled to, uh, Rumpier flew to Guatemala, fled to Guatemala, and the case was put on hold. Rumpier had denied the allegations. In a letter to Israel's Justice Ministry, Levy asked authorities to work with other countries to have Rumpier arrested. 
It is your responsibility to save my siblings and my mother, he wrote. Please do not stand by. He never received a response. In the meantime, other efforts were underway to help people get out of Lev Tahor. One was a website with a hotline set up by some Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn who considered the sect a perversion of their faith. Working anonymously to avoid compromising their efforts, they aimed to help Lev Tahor adherents recognize that, sect that the sect violates Jewish principles. In fall 2021, members of the Brooklyn group traveled to Guatemala and met with the country's president to tell him about Lev Tahor. The Asafu Levy and other former members to meet with the prosecutors there in hopes of building a case against the sex settlers, sex leaders. The other effort was organized by Amir and some of his relatives in Israel who assembled a volunteer team of former Israeli intelligence officials and lawyers to try to extricate his son from the group. One member of the team, an ex-Mossad agent named Daniel Lemore, visited Guatemala on multiple occasions. He flew a drone over Lev Tahor's settlement to take photographs and got onto the property by posing as a businessman interested in buying it to put up a solar farm. In early 2022, Lemoore watched the group disperse toward Mexico and began coordinating with officials there. The effort resulted in a warrant for the arrest of four Lev Tahor adherents in the state of Chiapas that included statements from former members about rampant abuse and neglect. One told authorities that when he was seven, he was sexually abused and that his father, under orders from Shlomo Helbrands, once beat him until he fainted. Amir testified that babies had died because their mother gave birth without medical attention and that was not allowed to, and, was, and was not allowed to see his parents or siblings for two years, even though they lived two floors above him in Guatemala City. When his 13-year-old sister didn't want to marry a 19-year-old, she was prohibited from speaking to anyone in the community for a year and developed a stutter, Amid told officials. In September, Amir arrived in Mexico a few days before the raid. As police barged into Lev Tahor's homes, men, women, and children screamed. Officials eventually brought out Amir's son. His wife was there too, but she refused to leave Lev Tahor. She and a few other members were detained by immigration authorities. Levy's 16-year-old brother, the one Amir had spotted, and about 18 others moved into a Mexican government shelter. To Levy's relief, after more than three decades, uh, Lev Tahor finally appeared to be falling apart. Nachman Helbrands was in prison, sentenced in March to 12 years for kidnapping as well as, chi uh, sexual, as child sexual exploitation. Prosecutors showed that after abducting his 14-year-old niece, he reunited with her adult husband. Several other members were also convicted in the case. Finding refuge had become Lev Tahor's priority, with some families traveling as far as northern Iraq or the Balkans. At one point, the group contemplated seeking asylum in Iran. Levy felt optimistic that he would soon be reunited with his 16-year-old brother. His mother and other siblings were still missing, but he dared to hope it would be only a matter of time before they would be out too. But four days after the September raid, the Israeli foreign ministry called Lev Tahor, uh, calling Lev Tahor a cult, said in a press release that its consulate in Mexico had tried to talk with members of the shelter but was rebuffed. They have currently refused to leave the set and move into Israeli custody, it said. 
Two days later, Levy got a call from a reporter at an Orthodox Israeli news site seeking confirmation that Lev Tahar members had escaped from the shelter. What? Levy exclaimed. The journalist sent him a video that showed Lev Tahar children and adults wearing long robes and head coverings pushed past guards at the facility and disappeared into the night. Levy called Amir, who eventually was able to confirm it. They were all gone. Levy forced himself to breathe. Going to Mexico would now be pointless. The final blow came when he learned that Mexican authorities released the two men they had ar uh, arrested during the raid. In an, uh, an attorney representing, representing them said they were freed because a judge determined there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute them. Mexican prosecutors did not respond to interview requests and the Israeli Foreign Ministry declined to comment on the escape. In a video conference with the Times, Abraham Dinkel and Uriel Gol, Lev, uh, Lev Tahor members who said they were living in Guatemala, insisted that the group had done nothing wrong and was being persecuted for its opposition to the modern-day state of Israel. There are people in the Orthodox Jewish community in the Israeli government that are hell-bent on destroying our community at whatever cost, said Dinkel, a Canadian who joined the group in 2014. He denied that Lev Tahor members viewed themselves as the only real Jews, but said their form of Judaism is not watered down and follows the letter of the Torah. The two men also denied that the group uses corporal punishment. They acknowledged advocating for early marriage, usually not as young as 13, but said nobody is forced. As for claims that children are separated from their parents, the men acknowledged that Levi and his siblings were sent to live with other families, but only because that is what their mother wanted. Nobody is taking away children, said Goldman, an Israeli who joined Lev Tahor in 1990. I'm not going to live in a community where people do things against the Torah and against the law. Levi and his brother Mendy were very rebellious children who were only seeking attention and celebrity status, said Dinko, who denied that the sect bore any responsibility for the death of their father. Their mother, he said, lives happily in Guatemala uh, with where most of Lev Tahor is now based, and teaches other women how to raise, and cook and raise children. She's one of the most powerful ladies, Goldman said. She is free to go, Dinkle said. We're all free to go. Nobody is being held back. Dinkle said, uh, Dinkle and Goldman said that they were in Greece when the raid occurred and that they got in touch with members of the shelter to coordinate the escape. The plan had been for everyone to run toward an exit as food was being delivered. After several taxis picked them up, they fled back to Guatemala. If they were actually victims of Lev Tahor, would they escape their so-called rescuers, Dinkle said. After three years in Israel, Levy felt stuck. He had a small circle of people he loved, including Amir and his son, now three. But without a high school diploma, he struggled to find a decent job. On January 26, he boarded a plane to New York en route to Montreal, where he planned to start a new life near Mendy. Levy, now 21, thinks consistently about the rest of his family and wonders whether, whether he will ever be re reunited with them, or whether they even want to leave Lev Tahor. Uh, in June, he and Mendy made their own trip to Guatemala on a special mission, to visit their father's grave and to begin arranging the return of his body to Israel. Except for a guard watching over the property, the former Lev Tahar base had been abandoned. The guard didn't say where everyone had gone, only that they were being unjustly persecuted. Traditional fur hats were scattered on the dirt. Levy stood for a photograph in front of a wall that had once been part of the synagogue. 
The brothers returned the next day, armed with a machete in case the grass hid uh, where their father was buried. Levy hoped to pray and take photographs that he could share with the officials or a lawyer. The guard refused to let them pass. That was after escaping a Jewish sect, he's fighting to free his family. By Leela Miller, reporting from Rishon Lezion, Israel, from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 5th, 2023. And now we go on to some entertainment news. First, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Monday, February 6, 2023, How Cinema Helped Hold Nazis Accountable by Justin Chang, film critic. In 1945, as Europe smoldered and the world waited for justice, American brothers and military veterans Bud and Stuart Schulberg embarked on the most difficult and important assignment of their lives. Their mission, handed to them by the Office of Strategic Services, was to track down filmed evidence of German war atrocities, which would be used in the prosecution of Nazi defendants at the Nuremberg trials. Both would go on to careers in film and television. Bud as the Oscar-winning screenwriter of On the Waterfront, Stewart as a producer of news documentaries, but not until after gaining a rare first-hand understanding of cinema's potential as an indictment of evil and an instrument of justice. How they painstakingly gathered and compiled enough footage on a tight deadline is one of several stories amassed and in the engrossing new documentary, Filmmakers for the Prosecution. Directed by Jean-Christophe Klotz, and adapted from a monograph by Stewart's daughter, Sandra Schulberg, the movie is, like so many Nuremberg accounts, an, al an alternately thrilling and chastening portrait of accountability in action. But it is also, as its title suggests, a thoughtful appraisal of the moral properties of the moving image. The guilty verdict at Nuremberg uh, were achieved, it reminds us, by way of a mountain of shocking and irrefutable uh, visual evidence filmed by the Nazis themselves and brilliantly turned against them in a court of law. Animated in its early stages by old TV interviews with Bud Schulberg, who died in 2009, the movie pays initially, plays initially as a tribute to Kando American Spirit. Kando American Spirit. The brothers got their orders from none other than director John Ford then head of the OSS Field Photographic Unit and a major driver of the Hollywood war effort. Bud attributes some of their footage-finding success to a fateful meeting with a Red Army captain who himself turned out to be a Ford superfan and scholar. That fleeting sense of kinship between American and Soviet veterans finds a sad counter-echo in the film's later passages, which detail how a promising spirit of post-war international collaboration fell apart with the onset of the Cold War. Klotz absorbingly details the brothers' race to salvage the incriminating film caches uh, before the Nazis could destroy them, a race that led to the arrest and detained of, uh, detainment of several Third Reich propagandists, including Lenny Rafelstahl, and at one point brought the Schulbergs into the depths of a German salt mine. The footage itself, generously sampled across the documentary's 58-minute running time, drew on everything from pogroms, book burnings, and Hitler rallies to the concentration camps themselves. Chances are you've seen some of these images before, 
given how much of the visual record of the Holocaust can be traced back to the images, the primary sources that the Schulbergs excavated and edited. The particular power of filmmakers for the prosecution is that it suggests what it must have been like to behold such images in all their starkness and horror for the first time. Its most gripping passages transport us to the Palace of Justice at Nuremberg as the trials get underway in September 1945 and the logistics of assembling and projecting the footage come into play. The details and negotiations are utterly fascinating. The highly meaningful decision to give the cinema screen pride of place in the courtroom where the judge typically sits, the discreet positioning of cameras and light sources to document as much of the trial as possible, and the facial reactions of the defendants, among them infamous Nazi leaders like Hermann Göring and Rudolf Hess, upon being confronted with incontestable evidence of their crimes. The significance of filmmaking at Nuremberg was at least twofold. There was the pre-existing Nazi footage that had been compiled, and there were also the films, one American, one Soviet, shot during the trial itself. Filmmakers for the prosecution details how the American project directed by Stuart Schuberg, entitled Nuremberg, Its Lesson for Today, was completed in 1948, but went unreleased for years. As political winds shifted and the Berlin blockade began, a documentary about one of the last great examples of U.S.-Soviet cooperation and action was determined not to be in the American public's best interest. The long-overdue 2010 release of Nuremberg, Its Lesson for Today, following a restoration effort spearheaded by Sandra Schulberg, went some distance toward correcting that oversight. Filmmakers for the prosecution achieved its so its own highly specific, specifi specific resonance. Arriving at a moment when images of atrocities have become a matter of everyday institutional record and public consumption, it laments the barba barba barbarism we see in these images and implicitly asks what it would take for them to, to shock and shame us anew. That was how cinema helped hold Nazis accountable by Justin Chang, film critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 6, 2023. It's called Filmmakers for the Prosecution in English, French, and German dialogue with English subtitles. Not rated, running time 58 minutes, playing at the Lumiere Music Hall in Beverly Hills. Okay, here is another film review from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Tuesday, February 7, 2022. One man bears witness to the Holocaust. David Strathairn uh, shines as Jan Karski, a diplomat turned resistance fighter, by Michael Rechtschaffen. Among those penetrating eyewitness accounts presented in Shoah, Claude Landsman's landmark nine-hour 1985 documentary recounting the Holocaust through testimonies of those who lived through it was that of reluctant participant Jan Karski. Neither Jewish nor German survivor nor, uh, nor perpetrator, Karski was a Polish diplomat turned resistance fighter who would serve as tape recorder, camera, and messenger, reporting the horrors of the Holocaust to the outside world, where his findings would often be met with deaf ears and blind eyes. His remarkable all-too-relevant story is hauntingly brought to life in Jeff Hutchins and Derek Goldman's Remember This, conveyed in the unique form of a filmed stage piece starring David Strathairn 
in a tour de force solo performance. Theatrical in all the right ways, the production is photographed in black and white on a bare set shared only with a Spartan wooden table and a pair of chairs, providing the familiar character actor with an expansive canvas on which to recount Karski's fateful experience. Human beings have infinite capacity to ignore things that are not con uh, convenient, asserts Strathairn's Karski directly into the camera, an observation that also applies to, applied to his unwillingness to relive his own uh, suppressed past until an insistent landsman tracked him down and convinced him to share details he had never even told his wife. Exhibiting impressive physical dexterity, Strathairn proceeds to take the viewer on a chilling journey through a hard labor at, P at POW camps, where Karski had been interned by the Red Army, transporting dispatches for the Polish underground and torture at the hands of the Gestapo. But it's only after he is given a first-hand tour of the Warsaw Ghetto and observes a transit camp that uh, he learns a different disturbing truth upon delivering his alarming reports to Western allies, including a cigarette-smoking President Roosevelt who seems more concerned about Nazis commandeering farmers' horses than the extermination of Poland's Jews. Commissioned for Karski's centennial, he died in 2000, the original stage production, Remember This, The Lesson of Jan Karski, written and educa by educators Goldman and Clark Young, was first performed by Strathairn at Georgetown University, where for decades the dapper immigrant taught courses in international relations and Polish history. The filmed version, meanwhile, recorded for PBS's Great Performances, is a study in elegant and eloquent minimalism, drawing the viewer in with simple sound fragments, church bells, chirping birds, marching soldiers, train whistles, and stark monochromatic lighting cues reflecting the moral ambiguities that surrounded Karski's journey. While Strathairn masterfully inhabits this self-described insignificant little man, as well as the dozens of characters he interacts with along the way, he also conveys the prevailing frustration and helplessness of an individual was ultimately unable to convince the world of impending annihilation while there was still time to prevent it. It hunts me right now, laments Karski, and I want it to be so. Despite his perceived failings, Karski and Remember This serve as a crucial reminder of society's duty to bear witness especially where, whenever and wherever it would seem impossible to raise one's voice above the din of indifference. That was One Man Bears Witness to the Holocaust by Michael Rechtschaffen from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 7, 2023. It's called Remember This, Running Time, 1 Hour, 35 Minutes, playing at the Lamely Monica in Santa Monica. All right, and we've got this one. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 5th, 2023, turn, your galaxy, turn on your galaxy brain. Annalie Newitz's new sci-fi epic takes world-building to an ingenuous macro level by Mark Athatakis. In 2021, Annalie Newitz, a science journalist and science fiction novelist, published a remarkable book entitled Four Lost Cities. Newitz visited the sites and studied the history of four ancient civilizations, 
and found that dead isn't quite the right word for what happens to one a once mighty urban centers. Even Pompeii, even Pompeii, famously buried by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in A.D. 79, wasn't destroyed so much as reshuffled. Cities was an engrossing, offbeat book about urbanism, looking deep into the past with an eye on the present. Maybe all our cities are in constant cycles of centralization and dispersal, Newitz wrote. Or, if we think with our galaxy brains, they are temporary stops on the long road of human public history. The Terraformers, Newitz's new novel, is an ingenuous galaxy brain book. Set in the very distant future, circa AD 59,000, it imagines human civilization evolving to the point where we can build new worlds and effectively process new types of creatures to steward them. Destry, a ranger monitoring planet in progress in the novel's early going, is a hominin, a human being who can live hundreds of years and her fellow hominins peacefully co cohabitate with different species. Her steed is a flying, chalky, moose-like creature. Naked mole rats are bound. But in the management of Destry's planet, Sask-E is handled by a distant corporation, Verdansi, and evil corporations haven't evolved much at all. The Terraformers is thick with space travel, whiz-bang technology, and radical re-envisioning of intraspecies relationships, but Newitz's concerns are earthbound. What bad compromises are made between populations and top-down leadership? How do tribalism and caste systems undermine societies? What makes any society unstable? And, there's a lot of this, why can we ever have better public transit? This is a much broader canvas than Newitz has worked with before. Their two previous, no their two previous novels concerned pharmaceuticals and robots, 2017's Autonomous and Time Travel, Gender and Power, 2019's The Future of Another Timeline. Here, Newitz is a thorough and meticulous world builder, almost to a fault. The narrative often delves deep into Sasky's weeds. But the heart of the story is a straightforward culture clash layered a straight, straightforward culture clash layered atop a capitalist critique. Destry and her fellow rangers are charged with preparing the planet for future residents and for Verdance, which promises a bespoke extraterrestrial experience. Settle on virgin Pleistocene land with your pure H. Sapien, Sapiens neighbors, reliving the glory days of Earth. Just as gentrification, Bigfoot's ethnic enclaves in any major city, Radonsi's strategy threatens a whole other group. Destry and her crew discover a tribe near a volcano that was supposed to build the planet's infrastructure and die off. Instead, they found a way to survive underground. Squabbles over who had the right to live and where escalate into uh, outright battles as the hominins strive to find a detente with the, with the ancient community. Eventually, a treaty is struck. One character muses that it could be a model for how to keep the balance in the future. Thirty-odd millennia into the future, those are still famous last words. Newitz has written an entertaining study of contentious social forces concerned with how the lower rungs of any society are mistreated. The terraform 
the terraformers owes as much to E.P. Thompson as Isaac Asimov. On a smaller scale, Newitz calls, uh, calls out the casual bigotry that dismisses the intellect of groups dis, uh, disfavored by those in power, a point made here via the intelligence assessment ratings Verdansa uses mockingly dubbed INASS. As an alternative, Newitz wants to celebrate the fluidity of relationships a more egalitarian society can offer. There are playful tracks to Sask-E's boutier outposts and plenty of hybrid species can canoodling to boot. The Terraformers may be a, the best novel you'll read this year about a tragic romance between two moose-like creatures. But Newitz is generally more comfortable operating at the macro level. Plate tectonics, river flow, and transit all play central roles in the book's plot, and each is handled with intelligence and often a delightful weirdness. In Four Lost Cities, Newitz argued that the main threats to civilization are aggressive top-down leadership and a failure to protect the environment. The same dynamic plays out here, as Verdansi's stubborn efforts to build a standard-issue train line ignore the ways communities evolve. New is a solution in the tra Terraformers, a flying worm-like train that can evolve with residents' needs, is a tick impractical. We'll need a few millennia to catch up to it. But the impossibility of the real world fix doesn't diminish a message that can be applied now. Treat communities equally, recognize their shifting natures, and ensure that they're not abused in the name of some outsider's notion of authenticity. These points can get clotted in the book's late going, as Verdansi leadership becomes increasingly one-note and authoritarian. Even the inevitable battle scenes can feel passionless in comparison with Newitz's true passion, urbanist rhetoric. And because the book's three-part structure introduces a new set of characters each time, it's harder to feel invested in any one of them, even as their homes are blasted into oblivion. In some ways, Newitz has done the job too well. The Terraformers is so good at imagining how people undermine their own societies that it seems downright miraculous imagining will make it to the year 3000, let alone 30,000. But the author's optimism is well argued and enchanting. Four Lost Cities listed a few of the elements of a healthy city. Good reservoirs and, and roads, accessible public plazas, domestic spaces for everyone, social mobility, and leaders who treat the city's workers with dignity. We don't need to build new creatures or find new worlds to create that, but even if we do, the same challenges will remain. The solutions will require the kind of leaps of imagination Newitz is confident we possess. Our galaxy brains have a lot of work to do. That was Turn On Your Galaxy Brain by Mark Athitakis from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 5th, 2023. Athatakis is a writer in Phoenix and author of The New Midwest. Okay, so now with the time that we have left, let's read some ads from the Jewish Journal for uh, January 27th through the February 2nd, 2023. And we start off with this one. Los Angeles Jewish Health is Energizing Senior Life. The evolution of our name, from the Los Angeles Jewish Home to Los Angeles Jewish Health reflects the full spectrum of our comprehensive award-winning programs and services. Los Angeles Jewish Health has grown from a group of caring neighbors providing shelter to a leading nonprofit senior care organization. Our mission remains the same, 
to deliver excellence in senior care for all, rooted in Jewish values. With more than 100 years of trusted care, we meet you where you are in life to provide a customized experience that's right for you. Independent living, assisted living, senior behavioral health, short-term rehabilitation, skilled nursing, PACE, hospice and palliative care, nursing school, geriatric health, memory care. LAJ Health, Los Angeles Jewish Health. One call does it all. 855-227-3745. Website is www.lajhealth.org. Right here's one. You don't need to be married to have a place in Eden. Singles events. The EdenProject.org slash singles events. Eden Project. Let's build to inspire. Moving on. This one is this one. Three views are better than one. Every morning, we're su- we serve up the hot issues of the day with three fresh takes to open minds. Jewish Journal Roundtable. Hot issues, fresh takes. Sign up now to get the email newsletter at roundtable.jewishjournal.com. All right, we got this one right here. The premier address for retirement living. Where you live says a lot about how you live. The village at Sherman Oaks' premier address in the heart of the valley is not only a choice location, it's one with a lot of choices. Here you'll find an engaging blend of comfort, style, fine dining, and social opportunities. And with a full-service maintenance-free living, safeguards, and supportive care options, you discover the retirement lifestyle that's just right for you. Please call 818-245-5832 to schedule your personalized tour. The Village at Sherman Oaks, CARF Accredited Independent Assisted Living and Memory Care Residence. Address is 5450 Vesper Avenue in Sherman Oaks. Website is shermanoaksseniorliving.com. Phone is 818-245-5832. On-site rehabilitative services available. Equal housing opportunity. RCFE number 1976 And we have another one right here. Amy Swars, Realtor, 310-748-2990. Website is www.amyeeswarz, amyswars.com. I know the West Side extensively. I grew up here. I was born and raised in Beverly Hills. I went to Hawthorne Elementary and Beverly Hills High School. I had my bat mitzvah in Israel. Working for a major company in interior de- worked for a major company in interior design for 10 years. I went to Camp S. Kramer and Brandy Summer Camp. I am passionate about real estate and interior design. Amy Swars, KW Keller Williams Beverly Hills. Address is 439 North Cannon Drive in Beverly Hills 90210. And we have this one right here hillside mortuary providing compassionate and professional mortuary services to families of all faiths hillside is built upon a foundation of relationships enabling us to assist in coordinating and expediting arrangements website is www.hillsidememorial.org advanced planning for more information about our online floral service, please visit www.hillsidememorial.org floral-service. Hillside Memorial Park and Mortuary, Los Angeles FD number 
one, three, five, six. And there's this one. Keep up with what's happening in town. JewishJournal.com slash calendar. And there's this one. Advertise your product or service here in the Jewish Journal Marketplace. To reserve your market market space, add space called 213-368-1661. And space reservation and ad material deadlines are 12 p.m. on Thursdays. And we have this final one. Mount Sinai, Hollywood Hills, rare, two plots side-by-side at section of Maimonides, LAMI34A, plot number 3065, 1 and 2, asking price 36000 OBO, endowment and transfer included. Mount Sinai price 46000 Call 310-601-6943. That's all for now, folks. Shalom and peace.